Hey, welcome to Tuesday Night School. Tuesday's a good night. There's something about Tuesday nights that I like. And it's not quite Thursday, but I have to say, there's something about the tea days. Yeah, we like those tea days, but it sounds like something else, like T-E-A. I'm not British. Oh, it's a tea day. Oh, you like the tea day. No, these are just the letter T, Tuesday and Thursday. It's like, it's almost like Tuesday is Thursday Junior. Welcome to Thursday Junior. Sounds like a kid's name. Now, you know, this show sometimes has a very practical purpose where, like, I'll eat a bunch or just eat what I need to eat. You know, today was a really big workout day. And, uh, you know, so I ate what I needed to eat. But then it's it's like that time of night, and this only happens to be happens to me at night. Like I can't understand somebody who binge eats at breakfast. Like I've like having a nice big breakfast is one thing, but having a big meal is different than binge eating. You know, you can have a big breakfast with like eggs, hash browns, bacon, just a, a traditional standard breakfast, and it's a lot. And you can do that for dinner. You know, you, you can eat a big meal, but I don't consider that binge eating. I think binge eating is when you're continually going to the fridge, going to the pantry. Like if you just eat a big meal that's served in front of you, and even if it's huge, even if it's a lot of food, I don't really feel like that's binge eating because you're still at dinner. And yeah, you'll, you can get fat that way. You can gain weight. But I still don't consider it the same thing. But at night, like I can go all day. I'll go all day and I eat the perfect amount of food. I I eat the perfect amount of snacks to keep myself going. I do intermittent fasting. I don't think of it as that, but that's what it is. And I've been doing that for like four years or something. I don't don't remember how long. Three years, four years, somewhere around there. Who cares? Who cares how long you've been doing intermittent fasting? I I don't, actually. I I really don't care. But uh, there's something about night. There's something about nighttime where my inhibitions are lowered. I guess because that's the time of night that I, I... It's really the only time of day that I actually relax at all. If you can call anything I do relaxing, probably not. But it's the only time of day where I'm really just sitting. And I'm just sort of mindlessly reading, looking at things. And so I have a tendency just to keep eating. I just keep going. And you throw marijuana into the mix, you know, that'll really do a number on you at night. For me, it's always night, though. I don't know why that is. And I don't understand binge eating during the day, but I do get it at night. But this show has a very practical purpose sometimes where I just ate a bunch of food and I'm like, you know, that was a lot. I'm kind of tempted to eat more. But you know what I'll do? I'll do a show. This way, if I do end up eating later, I've waited at least an hour or two. Maybe this will be a three-hour show. It's the perfect amount of time. I'll start doing three-hour shows because that's the ideal amount of time to wait between meals. So right now, this, this, is a, it's, this is a functional show where it's preventing me from eating more. Um, but I, where are we going here? Why did I hit record? I, I didn't hit record for that reason. I guess what I'll say is, you know, on a recent episode, I think it was not very long ago, just a few episodes ago, I was saying how I've been spending a lot of time staring into the abyss, and I'm very aware of that. 
but it still makes you sick. You know, even if it's temporary, even if you're going to get out of it, doing that makes you sick. It does something to your brain. And while I was doing that, I found myself angrier than normal, a little more morbid, a lot more morbid, just kind of agitated, dark. You know, it's just, of course, what do you expect? Everybody knows what the abyss is like. Whether you call it the abyss or not, you know what I'm talking about. But I was kind of deliberately doing it. I was like, this is an important time to watch the abyss. <laughs> you know, it's almost like a geyser. Where I've never actually seen a geyser that I can remember. I feel like you should remember that if you've seen it. I don't think I've seen a geyser. But it's that sort of thing where, as far as I know, it just sits there. It just sits there. And then it occasionally bursts. Is that the right term? A geyser bursts. Either way, there's a show. It puts on a show. And the abyss works very similarly to a geyser, where it's almost like you get word or you yourself just observe and notice. It's like, oh, it looks like something's going on. I mean, a volcano. It's like the way they can predict an eruption. It's like they they can tell some sort of activity is going on at the volcano. That's how I feel about the abyss, where it's just like there's some kind of activity going on there, and I I feel that I should be watching it, even though it's going to make me sick. And yeah, that's exactly what it does, and that's, you know, you just don't want it to make you permanently sick, and it does make some people permanently sick. It does make some people mentally ill. I mean, I believe a lot of what is considered mental illness, or in the past, possession, demonic possession, was people who just, the abyss got them. The abyss got to them, and that's the risk you run. But you do come out of it. And, you know, while you're staring into the abyss, it's very easy to think, like, this is how it is now. Because that's how I felt, like, a couple weeks ago. Because I did this for probably at least two weeks, maybe three, four weeks. I was just letting myself observe horrible things. Deliberately seeking things out that upset me. And while I was doing that, I wasn't interested in anything else. That's the problem. It's very easy to get into that mindset where you're like, well, I'm not actually even interested in anything else. The only thing I'm interested in is the abyss. And when the abyss hears that, it goes, it smiles, you know. <laughs> it smiles as much as an abyss can smile. Turns out the abyss can smile pretty big. But yeah, that's how you feel. You're like, well, I'm not even interested in anything else right now. I'm just going to be like this forever. I'm, I'm going to be sick forever. And when I was talking about that recently, I was saying how it is like being physically ill. It's like having the flu or a cold, where when I have a serious, when I'm actually taken out of commission by a physical ailment, my mind always goes to this place where I'm like, this is just how it is now. This is just how my life is now. This sore throat, this foggy feeling in my head. You know, this is just how my life is going to be moving forward because you're in the moment. And when people say, oh, you need to get in the moment, there's a bad moment you can be in too, and you're still in the moment. It's when something kind of takes complete control over you. And that's what happens when you're taken out of commission by a bug, by by a flying bug. (laughs) No, like when you, when you actually are sick. You know, if you're actually taken out of commission by it, you have to stay home, you're just on the couch, 
You're miserable. You're in the moment, but it's a bad moment. And uh, you forget that you're going to feel better. You forget that there's going to be a day, as long as you take care of yourself, there's going to be a day where you wake up and you're just like, oh, I feel substantially better. I can do things. I'm not completely better, but wow, something is lifting. And when I was talking about staring into the abyss and just seeking things out that bother you or focusing on dark things or agitating things, it does kind of feel like this is just how it's going to be forever. And then you wake up one day and you're like, actually, I'm, I'm interested in this other subject a little bit. And I would say that just happened for me. In the last few days, I would say, I just, I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not as obsessed with the abyss anymore. <laughs> Like, oh, you know what? People bought me a bunch of Abyss-related merchandise for my birthday. And I'm going to have to politely tell them, I'm not into that anymore. Like, I was talking to somebody, I think it was my friend's boyfriend years ago. He and I were talking about something, and he mentioned just how when he was in high school, he used to wear skull shirts. Probably, he had been into punk and stuff, so he probably had a misfit shirt. Maybe everybody, you know, all the skateboarders, you know, I knew had, uh, at one point, had like those Zero. There was that brand Zero skateboards, and their logo was a skull. So it's, I imagine, based on the, on the kind of guy he was, I imagine he was probably wearing those kinds of shirts. But he said his family, his relatives, got the idea that he's really into skulls. And here in adulthood... Here, you know, in his, I think I was probably in my late 20s, and so was he at the time. Like, here he is in his late 20s, and his relatives are still buying him skull merch. Skull merch. And it was just one of those things where it's like, this is what you're into, right? And that happens if you haven't seen a relative or some or a family friend for a while, where they haven't seen you since you were 10 years old, and you're 18, and they're like, you still into Ninja Turtles? You still liking the, you still, into, who's your favorite Ninja Turtle? My friend Nick was telling me a couple years ago, he ran into our friend's dad at a get-together, our childhood friend's dad, and his dad remembered something about Nick wanting to make movies or be into movies, which I think he would still want to do, but it's not like he pursued it. I think if somebody gave him the opportunity to make a movie, he'd do it. But uh, somewhere like this guy, probably from when he was like 14 years old, this dad heard that that Nick wanted to make movies, and so he was drinking at this at this get together. And the guy was just like, "So you still want to make movies, huh?" And he was like, "Oh, not really. I'm doing this. I'm studying this. I'm planning on doing this." You, you know, and the, and the guy wouldn't let go of it though. Like he kept talking to him as if he was still had this dream of being a, a, a filmmaker. And he and he kept and he was giving him advice on it. <laughs> He was like, you know, and this, and this guy's like, he's an investment banker and a good guy. Like, I mean, I'm not trying to knock the guy. I am. I'm trying to knock this guy. But it's, it's kind of an adult thing. It's kind of an older person thing to do. But it was just so funny to me that he wouldn't let go of this idea that my friend, you know, 15 years ago wanted to he maybe casually mentioned the idea. Oh, it'd be, I want to be a filmmaker. And this dad was just like, you know, if, if you want to be a filmmaker... He kept saying to him, you got to do the whole marathon. You can't, and he, I, I swear to God, he said this, it fits perfectly with last night's short episode, but he kept saying to my friend, you got to do the whole marathon. You got to be like the Rolling Stones, not Kurt Cobain. You got to do the, you got to keep going. 
be like the Stones, not Kurt Cobain. Like basically saying like don't don't kill yourself, <laughs> don't kill yourself. Like like be like the band who uh, are seventy five years old and still playing rock and roll concerts. Like be like the Rolling Stones. You got to be like Mick Jagger. It was the funniest thing in the world, and that turned into a joke with us where we kept saying marathon for about a year straight. Marathon was our go to. We we're like you got to do the whole marathon. You got to finish the marathon. And we took a trip to Canada, and the last night we were there, we went to this nightclub. And the night, I, I did a drawing of it, one of a, a rare full color drawing that I did of this nightclub. It's me and my friend in the nightclub. But when we were waiting in line to get in. And I don't go to nightclubs. Like we were just getting drunk, and we wanted to see girls, like not even interact with girls. We just wanted to observe girls because it was at this. He his family had this. Uh, they shared this cabin or something near this this ski resort. And it's a famous ski resort. So there's all these... It's beautiful girls from all over the world, from rich families. Like, you'll hear people talking in French. You'll hear people talking in different languages. And uh, this place attracts wealthy people. So, and, and as everybody knows, wealthy people have hot daughters. Hot daughters. Um... So we were just like, we want to go out to the nightclub and see these hot girls from all over Canada, all over the U.S., in some cases all over the world. But as we were waiting in line, and there was a girl in front of us, and she was obviously drunk, and she turned around, and she was like, what have you guys been up to? And we were like, oh, we've been all around, because we had, like, we'd gone to every bar in this small town, in this resort. And we finally were drunk enough. We were that, that's the whole thing is we were drunk enough to finally be like let's just let's just go to that underground nightclub over there. But we just told her like we'd been all around, and she goes, "Oh, so you've been doing the marathon?" And we both just looked at each other. And that whole trip, there it was just synchronicity after synchronicity. Another like like for example like the, the first omen of of synchronicity. I have a list somewhere because I wrote them all down. The first omen of that trip was like we were hanging out in his brother's room, my friend's brother's room, who was younger, and he had like all these stoner posters on the wall. He had been really into like Dazed and Confused and like stoner music. He had like psychedelic posters on his wall. And uh, he had a Sublime CD. So we were really drunk, probably stoned. And we put on this Sublime CD and we were just laughing. Like the fact that we were just sitting there listening to Sublime because we of course knew it. Like, we had been into Sublime when we were, like, 13 or something, so we, of course, knew the music. But there's that song, Garden Grove. can't believe I'm talking about Sublime songs, but why not? What else do I have to talk about these days? <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> we were just, like, laughing. I think we only listened to that song. Like, it's not like we sat there and listened to a whole Sublime album. But we listened to the song, Garden Grove... And then we get to Canada, like, and the first thing we see after we cross the border is there's a nursery, like a garden nursery, and it's called Garden Grove. There's a big sign. So I was like, what? You know, neither of us ever could have predicted that the very first thing we would have seen the next day once we arrived in Canada was Garden Grove. But this girl just blew our minds because it was like, it was the icing on the cake as far as synchronicity goes. This whole trip had been filled with them. And this girl was just like, oh, so you've been doing the marathon. And, you know, and she said, it's almost like it was in bold. Like, it's almost like when she said marathon, it was like sparkling. 
but yeah, I did a drawing of like us inside the nightclub because we were just really drunk, but like completely quiet. We didn't talk to anybody. We didn't even talk to each other. We were just watching this pretty much a clothed, clothed orgy taking place. It was really like, and it was people you wouldn't normally expect to be on the dance floor in a nightclub. Like it was dudes in ski caps. It was like snowboarder looking dudes, like young snowboarder looking dudes still wearing like beanies. And a lot of them, like I've never gone into it. I have been in other nightclubs before, but just, just so you know, but I've never been in a nightclub where there's tons of dudes wearing beanies, like colorful ski snowboarding beanies. But all the girls, as I, as I said, they were beautiful, world-class beauties. But it was like watching this orgy, and these girls were up on this. It wasn't a table, but it was like a, um, like in between columns, there was a raised area. And these two just gorgeous girls were just dancing, and it was short skirts. It, it was really like a go-go bar or something, but they were just random girls. And they were playing that. Uh, it was too perfect because they were playing that song... It was that big song by, I can't even remember the the artist, Blood, yeah, Bloodhound Gang. I can't, Bloodhound Gang and Sublime, guys. Uh, but it was Bloodhound Gang, Do It Like They Do on the Discovery Channel. That was a song, like you couldn't avoid that song for like two years. And they were playing that, which was even more perfect. Like a nightclub blasting Bloodhound Gang, Do It Like They Do on Discovery Channel and watching like these beautiful girls it's what we used to call freak dancing. When I was in junior high, when you'd dance with a girl and she would basically grind on you. It was this really... They actually tried to ban it for a while. And they had... The, the vice principal was this really mean black lady, like militaristic. And uh, she... Yeah, she was really mean. And she would go around on the dance floor and so would other people and they would separate people. And it was, it was crazy. The freak dancing at my junior high was crazy because the dances were sponsored by Cube 93.3, which was like the rap station. It was the Seattle rap station. So they would sponsor our school dances. And by that time, by like 1998, when I started going to school dances, it was just all R&B and hip hop. That's all they were going to play. They might play like one Blink-182 song if a kid requested it. But it was just going to be all rap, very sensual. Like, I've talked to my friend Nick about going into those dances, and we're like, nothing has ever recreated that feeling. Like, not even this nightclub that we went to completely recreated that feeling. It was like walking into the jungle. Those junior high dances, like, you walked into this dark room. I think they'd have, like, smoke. They'd have some, like, some really, like, small effects. People would have, there would be glow sticks. There'd be tons of kids standing around the corner, around the edges, like wallflowers, There'd be like a single girl dancing really enthusiastically by herself. And people would just be kind of laughing to themselves at it. And then they, there'd be like popular kids. And it was almost always popular kids doing this freak, what we called freak dancing. But it got really out of hand because it wouldn't just be like a girl doing that with a guy. Like girls would do it with each other. Like they would play up like a sort of like a, an early like pseudo lesbian thing where like two hot popular girls would freak dance with each other and the guys would crowd around. But the insane thing was sometimes a girl would be freak dancing with three guys. Like they would actually be simulating an orgy. There'd be a guy in front of her, a guy behind her, and sometimes another guy on the side. I'm not even kidding. 
Like, and this happened every single school dance. I'm not saying everybody was doing this, but it was like a girl basically getting gang banged. But it was a gang freak dance. But walking into those, it was just, it, it really was like walking into the jungle. It smelled like the jungle. It smelled like an artificial jungle and it was misty. There was always like this deep throbbing bass from the Cube 93 DJ. Uh, but th- this nightclub we were at later, uh, I don't I actually don't have anything more to say about it. <laughs> uh, it was a jungle atmosphere too. But it was just funny, like, the the sort of music they were playing and everything. But it was part of our marathon. And you got to finish it. You got to finish the marathon, as that dad said. You got to keep doing it. But what got me going on that was just the fact that, like, an adult, when you're a kid, an adult will get this idea of you and what you're into. And they forget that a kid's taste changes every month, every year. Like, oh, last time I saw you, you were into the Ninja Turtles. It's like, yeah, because I was seven years old and now I'm 16. Little did, the, little did they know, though, that like you're going to be 35 wearing a, a Ninja Turtles shirt and playing video games all day. Little do you know that's going to be a pretty normal type of guy in the world today. But, but still, like people like that guy's parents thinking, or, or I don't know who it was, like his family, his relatives being like, you like skulls. So we're going to keep buying you skull stuff forever. Nothing but skulls. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't even remember what, what that line of thought was. Um, I guess just people thinking you're a certain way. Like if someone hasn't seen you in a while, they just have a tendency to think you're a certain way. Oh, and I, I do know, actually, I do know what got me on that. It was saying that, like, you go through a phase where you're really into staring at the abyss, so people start buying you abyss merchandise, which does exist, but it doesn't say abyss on it. Like, I see a lot of abyss merch. I see a lot of fashion. I see a lot of the things people adorn themselves with, a lot of the things they're interested in as products of the abyss. And to be honest, that's mostly what I see today. Like, whether it's pop culture, whether it's, you know, what's in the media, the things people are saying, the things people are wearing, the way they talk about themselves. And I mean, I I feel it myself. This criticism applies to me too. But I just see so much abyss. But you never want to be so attached to the abyss that people define you by it. And I feel like that was a risk not only did I run that risk, I feel like I actually fell victim to that. And I was the perpetrator. Because I think there was a period where people in my life were just like, oh, here's some information about a serial... Let's talk about serial killers. Oh, I, I bought... You know, a good example of that is I had an ex-girlfriend who... We broke up, but we still ended up exchanging birthday gifts. And it, it was really sweet and everything, but she bought me this book... And she was really interested in serial killers herself. Like, she watched Law & Order SVU all the time. And she was interested in serial killers. We used to talk about it. I think it was one of our early conversations that we bonded over, actually. And she was a girly girl. But she was into just that kind of stuff. Dark psychology, serial killers. And I never, ever, like, 
communicated to her that I liked gore. And in fact, as I've said on this show, I'm very squeamish. When it comes to blood and guts and gore, I am incredibly squeamish. I avoid it. I don't mind artistically rendered blood. Like, I've always been attracted to the way blood is depicted in comic books. And if you look at a lot of my childhood drawings, like, guys will just be inexplicably bloody. Inexplicably bloody. That's a good one. And that's even my Beavis and Butthead drawing. It's on my website. Check out my website, ericstonefelt.com. But I think it's on the About Me page of my website. I include some childhood drawings that I could find. And there's my favorite of all time, which is this drawing of Beavis and Butthead. And then at the bottom, my mom had written Eric, age eight. So I feel like that's the most credibility I'll ever have, is drawing this this awesome picture of Beavis and Butthead when I was eight. But they're bloody. Like, I think Beavis, I think Butthead has like a wound on his head. Beavis has a bloody nose. I can't remember where the blood is. Okay, I don't remember exactly where the blood is, but... They're both inexplicably bloody, not horribly, like they're not covered in blood, but they just, they, they look like they've been in a fight. And so I couldn't even draw Beavis and Butthead as a kid without adding some blood. And I've always been attracted to that visual. Like there's a Suffocation album, or a Suffocation EP, their first EP, Human Waste. And the cover is great. It's like this demon with a, like some kind of saw And he's on this little elevated platform and there's blood all over the platform. And just the way that blood looks is so cool. But translate that to real life. If I even see my own blood, I freak out. When I was interested in serial killers, occasionally I would accidentally stumble upon a crime scene photo. Like, I think the worst I ever saw was photographs that Jeffrey Dahmer had taken that they confiscated when they caught him. And there were photographs he had taken of the dead bodies he had killed. And there was a guy like on the edge of a bathtub, an African-American gentleman. And his his body was like resting. It was dead, obviously. Uh, And his body was resting on the edge of a bathtub. And his rib cage was completely exposed. Like he had just like ripped open his torso. And you could see his entire rib cage and all, all of the corresponding gore. And to this day, that just I, I shouldn't even be talking about it because I don't want to remember it. It stayed with me for days. Like I could read about all the psychological aspects, like the stories themselves about serial killers, who they are, and what they do didn't bother me in the least. But when it got into the actual gore, especially photographs of it, I just couldn't handle it. And I've always made that clear to people, I feel like. I, I, at, le- at the very least, I've never been a gore guy. I feel like I've always made it pretty clear, you know, not that people are thinking that. Like, not that people meet you and they're like, huh, I wonder if this is a gore guy. Is this, is this guy into gore? Not that anybody thinks that, but I, I'm definitely not somebody who... I'm the same way about medicine. I'm the same way about hospitals and, and medicine and all that. You know, it's just something that gives me kind of a bad feeling. I'm not even afraid of it. It just I have a physical reaction to it. My arms get light. I just don't like... Like, my sister has an issue with it, too. Like, there was one time where she had to have, I think, blood drawn, and she looked down and saw her blood and fainted, like a cartoon. So there's something about us Stonefelts and blood. But this girlfriend of mine, like, we broke up, but we still exchanged gifts because we were still close and everything. 
and she bought me this book that was just like these murder scene photos and not not serial killer deaths or not serial killer victims but just people who had died horrific gory deaths and they were old photos at least like they were all black and white so there was kind of an aesthetic appeal i never once looked through it though i kept it in a box i just kept it in a box in my closet for close to 10 years and it was one of those things though, where like it kind of like it, it kind of justified the breakup. Like I, she broke up with me, but it kind of justified the breakup in a way, because it was like if she thinks after all that, because we spent years together, and it was kind of like oh, if she thinks after three years that I'm a gore guy, she really didn't get me. And I understand that's a pretty you know there's a fine line there where it's like you're interested in dark stuff, you listen to death metal. You know, you, you have encyclopedic knowledge of serial killers. It would make sense to be like, oh, here's a book of dead people, <laughs> you know. But no, you know, there is a fine line there where it's not for me. And it's sort of, in my mind, it was just a little thing at the time that was like, you know what? Maybe she didn't get me. And it's happened to me since then, too. Uh, where people that I haven't really spent a lot of time with in the last few years will occasionally, like, tell me something or give me something like like the big one is recommending crime documentaries like there were a, a few years there where I, I'd, I'd really just lost interest in serial killers entirely not not even lost interest but just exhausted the interest like I found out everything I needed to know and anything more than that would be too indulgent because I think you already reach a point with that stuff where you become too indulgent but I was, I was pretty much past it. But for a long time after that, for a couple of years at least, you know, people would still recommend me and sometimes even give me books and things. And I, I just was like, I'm not into skulls anymore. Grandma remembers that I used to wear skull shirts in the eighth grade and she still buys me skull shirts. Like there's something sweet about it, but it's just that sort of feeling where it's like, oh yeah, you know, something about me has changed, but it's not always easy to communicate that. So I'm happy to say, though, that I'm not as obsessed with the abyss right now. The last few days, I feel like I woke up and I was like, oh, I, you know, I don't feel like just putting my face in that all day. Just part of the day. I only want to do that part of the way. Or some of the time. Because I think right now it's inevitable. Like you do have to wall yourself off or you might live in an ideal place. Because the thing about where I live, and I think this is true up and down the entire West Coast, at, the, at least, if not uh, the East Coast, West Coast, even just leaving the house, I see the abyss everywhere. So, you know, why indulge in it further if I don't feel like doing that? But, you know, I'm not going to talk about any culture war stuff here. I'm not going to get into I'm not going to get into anything political. I'm going to try to avoid it here. I'm just, I'm less focused on it. Because that's the thing too, is, is when I'm, when, when I was just rubbing my face in all that stuff, I end up inevitably talking about politics all the time, which I hate to do. I hate to do that to anybody who listens to this show still. I hate to do that to anybody, you know, even if they agree. Because I listen to some shows and it's whatever's in the news that day, that week, they all talk about it. 
and I like to hear them talk about it, but it also feels very cheap. You know, a good example is like right now, various shows that I just put on in the background, they're all talking about the girl who disappeared and her body was found and that whole saga. I don't blame people for being interested in that and I have no more to say about it. Something about it feels very manufactured and I felt I felt something telling me not to read about it or listen to anything about it. Unless somebody has a... Like, I've heard a couple funny takes on it. You know, I have heard a couple funny takes, and that's a little different. Like, someone who deals with humor, somebody who's just funny. I mean, that's the ultimate form of alchemy. You can actually talk about anything. Even something that feels like a psyop. Because that's kind of how I feel about that whole thing with the girl missing, is I'm like, this feels like a psyop. But I'll hear these shows that are covering the saga, and they're not shows that otherwise would ever have anything to do with that. But just like I mentioned it, they they mention it, but they have a tendency to go off. And I've been listening to these shows, and I'm just like, you don't really need to be talking about this. You don't need to talk about every story in the news. And I run the risk of doing that. I've been doing that more recently, the last few weeks. So it's nice that I feel like I kind of moved away from that. And, and I'm not going to get into politics deliberately here. But I do want to talk a little more about that phrase that I used. Imposing your will. I've been using that as just the catch-all for what's going on. People imposing their will. And that's the thing that bothers me more than anything. More than anything else going on. What you cannot do is impose your will on people. And yes, you know, I'm not an idiot. I'm a half an idiot. I'm not a, I'm not a full idiot. I know that we inevitably live in a world where somebody is imposing their will on you at all times. The government, if nothing else. Chances are, no matter what, there are people imposing their will on you. It's what people have a tendency to do. But right now, it's strong. Right now, there is a very forceful, heavy-handed effort by certain people to impose their will on others. And will is a good word. It's one that, I don't know, I, I, I've only started thinking of it in the last few years, but it is a good word for this. And I'd completely forgotten this. Like, it's on my fridge and everything. It's written on a post-it note on my fridge. But before my mom died, it was not on her, she, you know, she wasn't on her deathbed. But sometime before she died, she wrote on a post-it note, and she and she mentioned it to me as well. Like it was something, we had a conversation about it. But she had heard a saying somewhere, and I don't know what the source is. I'm just going to attribute it to my mom. Like I remember her saying she heard it, but you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attribute it to my mom. Uh, and it's anyone convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. She had mentioned that to me in a conversation And I mean, it applies in any given situation. Anyone convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. So we had a conversation about that. And then when she died, I found it on a post-it note among her things. And so I put it on the fridge. And with all this talk about people imposing their will, I haven't even thought about that saying. I know I've brought up that quote before in the last couple of years. Uh, I know that I mentioned it, I think, after my mom died. But it's funny, it totally slipped my mind. Like, but it's, it's just the truth, because a lot of people are realizing right now that there's no convincing anybody. 
You know, some people are trying to convince people by just sheer force, through shame, through condemnation. But I don't believe anybody is going to be internally convinced about anything. I think the lines are pretty much drawn. And even though I like to consider myself, I'm not a centrist by any means, but I do often think of myself as kind of off to the side. But even then, I feel like the lines are drawn around me, and I know where I stand. But it's an important thing to remember if you find yourself trying to convince anyone of anything. If you're doing it just to make an argument and for the exercise of doing it, that's different. You know, because I think that's worth doing sometimes. I think sometimes it's worth verbalizing something, it's worth writing something, even just thinking something to kind of keep your brain active around that idea. And sometimes that can come out in the form of a debate with another person. And I don't think there's anything wrong with debating. But we're in a time where I don't believe you're going to do much convincing. And this plays into the, the pointing out hypocrisies thing that I talked about. I think I mentioned this after the election or after uh, Obama took office, took orifice. Where one thing that I'm not going to do is point out the hypocrisies. Because one thing that politics, social politics, are filled with is complete hypocrisy, contradiction. The thing that one side demonized the other side for, well, guess what? They're doing it now. Or they said this, but they're doing this. I'm glad that there are people pointing things like that out at any given time. I'm glad there are people who feel that that's their place, that that's their duty. Whether they're pundits, journalists, just commentators, I'm glad that there are people out there who keep track of that kind of thing, who keep track of the hypocrisies. Because it keeps you sharp to, to see what other people are doing and to remember that these people aren't consistent. But I'm glad those people do that so that I don't have to, because I know that when I do find myself doing it, and I do, I do do this, but by telling myself I'm going to not do it, I'm going to do it less. And that's pointing out hypocrisies, pointing out contradictions, because they're everywhere. It's like seeing weeds in an, you know, it's like an ignored garden sprouting weeds. A neglected garden, that sounds better. It's like a neglected garden. Have you been to the neglected garden? No, but it's kind of that idea where it's like, when it comes to politics, when it comes to social politics in particular, it's a lot like a neglected garden. You're going to find weeds, you're going to find contradictions, hypocrisies, and lies. I don't feel like it's my duty to point those out. Maybe if other people weren't, I would feel the need to. Because that's one of my philosophies, is just that sometimes it's nice to hear somebody express an opinion that you yourself would otherwise have, but because that other person expresses it, you're off the hook. You can focus on something else. Not that you shouldn't support that person. I think sometimes when someone comes out with an opinion, especially if it's controversial and you agree with it, sometimes you should actually do what you can to support that person. But that doesn't mean you have to say it. It doesn't mean you have to parrot it. And I don't know how effective it is. I don't know that it's a great use of energy. 
I know that it's not a great use of my energy. And when I'm doing that, I can feel that I'm saying the wrong thing. I can feel that I'm doing the wrong thing. It goes back to that Buddhist precept of wrong speech, where the idea of wrong speech in Buddhism is basically anything you say that you know to be wrong, whether it's something deceptive, a lie, something that will just have an effect. I mean, it could be any number of things. It's something that your intuition tells you either not to say or after you say it, you think, I really shouldn't have said that. Not because of the social repercussions of saying it, but just you can feel that it makes you worse to say it, which is why it's referred to as wrong speech. Not to be confused with bogus categories like hate speech. Wrong speech is just something that you internally know is wrong, something you shouldn't say. And when I do find myself falling into pundit territory where I'm like, look at how they're doing this, but they said this, I can feel that that's wrong. I might not feel that way, though, if nobody was pointing it out. I don't know. I just And at this point, though, everything is so defined. There's so much that people are up in arms about. And so much of it is bundled together. It really is a, if you're not with us, you're against us environment that we're in. And as a result, I don't know how much convincing you're going to be able to do. And like that quote that my mom channeled, anyone convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. So even if you win that argument, what are the chances that you're actually going to change how they feel inside most likely you just bully them into agreeing with you but that's almost worse in some way and I mean this is true for any kind of argument it's not just heated political arguments I mean I've even had this experience just with debates I mean this happened to me fairly recently Uh, there's a guy I know through just some research and stuff and he had a, a different take on something I was kind of dismissive of something I mentioned to him. And because he was dismissive, I, I wanted to elaborate on why what I, what I was saying, the information I found was relevant in context. And I could tell, though, that it pissed him off. And like, I was not aggressive. It was, it was very, it was a tactful conversation. And this is somebody I consider a friend. But it, I could just tell that he wasn't going to be convinced And then I have to accept at some point that it's incredibly unimportant. And even if I do convince him, even if I did, I do feel that I proved my point. Because there's so much emotion involved, I don't think I actually convinced him completely. And who cares, you know? But I mean, that quote, you can just think about it with regards to yourself. You don't even have to think about other people. You don't have to think about yourself as the convincer. You can think of yourself as the convincee. Like somebody who's trying to impose their will on you against your own will isn't going to change your opinion. And you're actually going to be more resentful of that person and their ideas. And if you get the chance, you might even retaliate some way. Because that's what happens. Like when you make somebody do something they don't want to do, there's a certain sort of person who goes along with it and eventually believes it. 
there are people out there who they might not want to believe something, but somebody just bullies them into it. And because they broke, because they gave in, they kind of decide just, okay, well, that's going to be my opinion now. It's easier. It's easier just to go with the flow. But I know there's a lot of people like me where no matter what you force me to do, you're not going to change how I feel inside. And that's actually going to be worse for you if the, the tide changes. Because I'm going to be that much less forgiving. I'm going to remember that you tried to impose your will on me. And because you didn't actually change how I feel inside, well, I might want to retaliate. I mean, and I'm not saying that I myself want to do that. I mean, part of my own practice is not giving into that. I've mentioned before, like the whole game of like so much of like who you like as people depends on if they like you. We have this weird standoff socially sometimes, romantically, where it's like, I only like them if they like me. But they only like me if I like them. So someone has to give in at some point. But, you know, we are so sensitive and we can be so petty that if you found out that someone is mad at you, your go-to response is to be mad at them in return. You're mad at them for being mad at you. But it's so liberating to not get mad at them. Or if you find out somebody doesn't like you, it's so liberating to just continue liking them. It doesn't matter what they think of me. It sucks they don't like me. But, you know, it actually doesn't matter. I can still like them. Or I can at least not hate them for hating me. So, I mean, I try to make it a point to think that way, up to a point. I make it a point up to a point to think that way because I don't want to give in to that sort of petty thinking, that small thinking that says my relationship to other things depends on those things relationship to me. And I mean, that's what a relationship is, but just what I mean is like, I don't want my opinion to be so flimsy that somebody else's opinion of me impacts that. But a lot of people don't necessarily care about doing that. A lot of people are completely fine. They're actually happy they have the opportunity to give in to that sort of reptilian thinking. And I'd like to think that I'd be very forgiving. Like if the tide changes in our culture, hopefully things don't get worse. But if they do and the tide eventually changes, I'd like to believe that I won't hold any serious grudges. I'd like to believe that I've worked hard enough to not do that. Some of it might be inevitable, but there's a lot of people who don't care. They're happy to have a grudge. And when you force them to do something and they develop a grudge against you, you better hope that the tide doesn't change. And I don't mean that in the like a physical harm sense, like, oh, they're going to beat me up or kill me. I just mean like they're going to be more than happy to impose their will on you once they get a chance because you imposed your will on them they now are going to be looking for a chance to impose their will on you. It's as simple as that. But it's important to remember that anyone convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. And I don't think we're going to be doing a lot of changing because, I mean, it's, there's so much that's out in the open. And, I mean, I try to pay attention to a fairly aggregated collection of news sources. I'm not going to say I read everything, 
Like there are certain networks, news networks that I will just simply not pay any attention to. And that includes big ones. Like, for example, I avoid CNN. I don't want anything to do with CNN. Other ones are these sort of brand new, low budget, right wing shows that are very generic. I think one of them is ONN. And they just seem very cheap. It seems obvious what they're doing. I mean, there's just certain news that I don't pay attention to. But I'd like to believe that I I take a look at a fairly aggregated collection of news. But I mean, something to keep in mind, though, with this with this idea of, of convincing someone against their will, but not ultimately changing their opinion, is that so many people, too, are not looking at the same things you're looking you're looking at. Like we have so much information available that you can kind of you can kind of curate the information you pay attention to while filtering out, blocking out information that you might not like. And we're in a world where despite all of the information we have, people operate with this tunnel vision. And that makes it especially difficult to have a healthy debate. Because you're not even seeing the same things they're seeing, or they're not seeing what you're seeing. They simply don't know. And you know what? They don't care. Like, even if you were to show them, even if you were to show them definitive proof of what you're talking about, they would find a way to dismiss it or ignore it, because they've made up their mind. And that's what it comes down to, is making up your mind. And it's a good example of wrong speech once again. When you find yourself trying to force somebody to see things your way, if you can get outside of your own ego in that moment, you'll realize how dirty it feels. You'll realize that it's a very dirty experience. There's a guy I like who does a show, and he, he told a story where he had a girlfriend who wanted to put up a Bob Dylan poster in their apartment. And he hates Bob Dylan. And so the idea of having a Bob Dylan poster in his apartment is just god-awful. Like, I wouldn't want that. Like, it's one thing to have your significant other express their taste and be into what they're into. But I think you can draw a certain line and just say, you know what, I do not want a poster of Bob Dylan in my house. And so this is what this guy did. And they got in a big argument, he said. They got in this big argument about a Bob Dylan poster. You know, oh, why'd you guys break up? Well, you ever heard of Bobby Dylan? Um, but he was talking about like how they got in this big argument, and he ended up winning the argument. He ended up winning the argument. The points he made, I would love to hear the points he made. I'm sure it was just sheer force of will. And, you know, that's the thing. Is sometimes you do have to impose your will. Like, if your girlfriend wants to put up a Bob Dylan poster in a prominent part of the house, like, it's one thing if she has her own little corner, her own little space, her own room to do things. But, like, putting up a Bob Dylan poster in a prominent place is a problem. I understand this completely. And in that case, all you can really do is use your own force of will because there's no rational argument to be made. There's no logic to it. It's just simply, I'm not a fan. And not only am I not a fan of Bob Dylan, 
I might not like what he represents. And I might not even know what that is. But my gut tells me I don't want him on my wall. I don't want him on my wall. So this guy got in this big argument with his girlfriend. He won. And he, he says he remembers like see, he remembers watching her, like going into the room and seeing her sadly and meekly taking down the Bob Dylan poster. And he said it just ripped his insides out. And he was just like, you know, I'm such a monster. I swear to God, this isn't my own story. <laughs> it sounds like I, I can relate to it. Um, but he, he said he's like seeing her, her just with this like downcast look taking down the Bob Dylan poster. It was just like, who am I that I had to f- just force my will on her? But I mean, there's a time and a place where sometimes you have to, but it doesn't feel good. Something feels dirty about it. And you end up regretting it. And that's been my experience too. You know, that's, that's my experience is just that any time that I try to convince somebody of something, even if I win, it doesn't feel good. It just, it really doesn't feel good. And just like I was talking about a minute ago, you run the risk of them holding a grudge against you. You've initiated a game where you impose your will, and then when they have an opportunity, they're going to do the same to you. So that's one of the reasons not to do it is because they could reciprocate and do the same thing to you when they have the chance. You end up playing this sick back-and-forth game. But, um, you know, it's, it's, I was thinking about humor, as, as I often do, just the idea of humor... And that's something even that, like when you get beyond even just the offensive stuff, like these people are offended by this and don't think you should be able to joke about that. When you get beyond that, it's just very clear that different groups of people have different senses of humor. And that's a family thing even. Like I played apples to apples with this girl and her family. And it was very clear that my sense of humor was fundamentally different from theirs. And as a result, I lost. Because it's a game where the ju- like there's a different judge every round. And you ask, if you haven't played apples to apples, like the judge, sa- the judge gives a prompt. They, they basically, like, they'll read out a sentence or a question. And the people playing the game have a set of cards. And they lay down the card that they think fits best. And it's usually something kind of funny, but you can play it where it's serious, where you lay down the card that actually makes sense, or you can lay one down that's completely absurd. And I think I brought this up a while back because I was saying how I've never played Cards Against Humanity. I've been at parties where people are playing that. I've been around it many times. I refuse to play Cards Against Humanity. It's too upfront. It's too obvious. It obviously came about because somebody played apples to apples or a similar game and they were because you can you can say offensive things in apples to apples. It's harder to do, but you can do it. You know, it's like the prompt might be something that's stupid and you might have a card that says women and you lay it down and it's like it's it's either funny or it's not whatever, but I think there's even a Hitler card so you can lay down a Hitler card in response to something. It's like the prompt is 
you know, something fun and exciting. And if you have the Hitler card, you can lay that down and it's like a, a dark joke. A dark joke. But Apples to Apples itself is fairly lighthearted. But as far as Cards Against Humanity goes, it's deliberately designed so that you can be offensive and dark. And that kind of takes the fun out of it for me. It's a little too obvious. And when I've seen people playing it, I've refused. I just refuse to play Cards Against Humanity. Um, But, you know, playing Apples to Apples with the girlfriend and her parents, it was just very clear they had a different sense of humor than me. And uh, as a result, though, it's like they didn't get my jokes. Like, I would lay down a card, and they wouldn't realize that I was being sarcastic or facetious. And not that I was even doing anything offensive in that case. It was just I would lay something down that had a certain irony to it, maybe. But they didn't have that kind of sense of humor. They were, as a family, they didn't have... a sense of humor that involved facetiousness or irony or juxtaposition. I'm so pretentious about humor. Listen to me. But it was just, it wasn't as fun to play for that reason. But you know what? I was playing with them. Like it was their house, their game. It's not like I was pissed off or anything about it. I was just very aware of the fact that, oh yeah, like there's there's some dissonance here. And so families can have their own sense of humor. Obviously, political groups do. Obviously, there's a huge divide. Like, even once you get beyond inappropriate subject matter, just the way, for example, that people on the right wing approach jokes versus people on the left wing, and not just anybody who's Republican or anybody who's Democrat. I'm talking about the people who are kind of at the the forefront of culture. There's a very distinct sense of humor to each group and kind of a template even. And, And in my experience the last few years... The right wing, it's, it, it relies less on templates. Like right wing humor, right leaning humor tends to, it's, it's almost like each new joke is a brand new mutant. And with the left wing, it all kind of follows a similar template. It feels very predictable. It's kind of like ad libs. And I was thinking about this yesterday, how there's a really common joke, and it comes primarily from young liberal women, and it goes like this, like, it, <laughs> it goes like this. It, it would be something like a girl posting something online on Facebook or Twitter that says, I just found out that Klondike bars aren't made with real ice cream. I don't even know what to think of life anymore. I now I know what nihilism is. You know, it's it's this sort of like this pseudo nihilist humor. It's usually based around kind of mundane products that everybody knows. I mean, that's just one I'm making up. It's a, I wish I could think of a better example. For all I know, Klondike bars do have real ice cream, but that's the sort of humor where it's like, I just found out today that Klondike bars don't use real ice cream. Now I know what existentialism is. It's, it's that sort of template. And uh, the language is all very similar. Like I said, it's kind of this game of ad libs where you just fill in a couple blanks and that's the joke. I mean, another form of it too is just that it's, it's all a version of adulting is hard. Adulting is hard. I'm not doing a very good job adulting today. 
That's the sort of vibe that it has. And I'm not saying everybody makes those jokes, but I see enough of a pattern with it, and it's very unfunny to me. But I also understand it's not intended for me. It's not like my response to that is, you can't say that. You can't do that. It's just very unfunny. And I do feel that there is something sharper, even when it's inoffensive, but there's something sharper about right-leaning humor to me. And it might not even, I don't even think saying right-leaning is the right way to say it. It's just, I I think any humor that is averse to modern leftism, or maybe more specifically, just modern leftism imposing its will, like the sort of humor that evades that, to me, is funnier. And that tends to be true no matter who's in power, too. The humor that is sort of getting in under the door. The humor that like sneaks, the door is trying, they're trying to close the door and the jokes that sneak in under the door, in that little crack between the floor and the bottom of the door. Good little rhyme. Between the floor and the bottom of the door. But jokes that get in through that space tend to be that much funnier. And so I think a lot of it has to do with who is holding the cultural power. And right now that is undeniably the left. And so I think that's one of the reasons why humor that doesn't rest in the very confined, constricted, and predictable world of leftism, you know, humor that avoids that tends to be funnier. And I mean, I I was, I took Batty for a walk today, and I took him to Evergreen, the college where I take him all the time. It's right by my house. And there were these two women getting ready for a run, and you could kind of tell what they were all about. As much as I don't want to judge a book by its cover, I mean, they were at Evergreen. Granted, I am too. Granted, I went there. But still, you could kind of get a vibe from them. And I just overheard their conversation, and one of the girls, I, I couldn't tell if she was, like, making a joke. I guess it was kind of a joke, but she was like, when I was growing up, like, my parents used to say, if you have a stomachache, drink, like ginger ale and I was like I'm gonna drink cranberry juice and I think it was a joke I couldn't quite tell it was it was done in that sort of upspeak style you know I say like a lot I'm a valley girl too so this isn't an attack on that way of speaking that my generation does where we say like all the time I do it too but she had she added like a like after every other word it felt like but i think she was making a joke cuz the other girl kind of laughed but it was basically like oh my parents were so stupid they told me to drink ginger ale when i had a stomach ache and that's wrong that's like that's that's scientifically wrong i would rather have ginger ale if i had a stomach ache maybe i'm stupid maybe i'm stupid like that that I, if somebody said, oh, you got a stomachache, would you prefer ginger ale or cranberry juice? I think I'd say ginger ale. That might be sort of one of those wives' tales, you know, where it's like, do this if you're feeling this. It reminds me of that movie, is it Doc Hollywood or Michael J. Fox? There's a kid having some sort of, he gets called in the middle of the night because there's a kid having some sort of severe medical issue. And everybody's trying to figure out what's wrong with him. And Michael J. Fox is like, have you tried giving him a Coke? And it turns out like Coca-Cola cures this kid's 
the kid's having like a respiratory issue or something. He can't breathe. And Michael J. Fox, the doctor, is just like, have you tried giving him a Coca-Cola? And sure enough, that's the cure. I feel like drinking ginger ale with a stomach ache. You know, here, this poor girl had no idea this random weird guy walking by with a dog would just hold on to her words and talk and dissect them. But I don't know, it was, it was kind of indicative of a certain sense of humor. And a lot of that humor, too, it, it's not surprising that she was kind of making this joke at the expense of her parents. Because a common thread with all these people is they hate their parents. Like, even if they had wonderful parents. I personally know people like this. I'm close to people like this. Who, they had wonderful parents. I know everybody's story is different. But sometimes you know for a fact. And I see a lot of this anti-parent mentality. Some of that comes from therapy. And even if somebody hasn't been to therapy, there's a lot of people who have picked up on that way of thinking, which is blame your parents for everything. Oh, you know, when I was growing up, my parents didn't have the trans flag hanging above our fireplace. You know, my parents suck. They They raised me poorly. Stupid joke, but I don't know. That's the vibe I get from people. And your humor is one of those things, though, where it's like I've, I've said this about music, where I love music more than anything, but I also hate it more than anything. And I experience far more music I hate than music I love. And you're lucky if you feel indifferent to music. But that's sort of the risk you run when you're attached to when you love something it's one side of the coin and the other side of that coin is hating it. And humor is very similar in that way where everybody loves humor. Except for that lady I worked with who ingeniously told us on her first week, oh, just so you guys know, I don't have a sense of humor. So if you guys joke around in the office, I'm not going to get it. That's a good joke. She meant it. That was the same woman who gave me her Danzig posters that she got in the 80s. And she had a Danzig tattoo. That's a pretty amazing personality. Like to be, she was an ex-punk who'd become very straight-laced. Still still liberal and everything, but she'd become very straight-laced in the decades since then. She was a punk in the 80s. And she got a Danzig tattoo in like 1988 or something. You know, I'm not talking about somebody who got a Danzig tattoo in 1994 when he finally became a, a, a big name. She got a Danzig tattoo in the 80s, and she still had these giant Danzig posters that she gave me. But the fact that somebody like that also doesn't have a sense of humor and that she made it a point to tell us, that's ingenious. Because it wasn't a form of my joke that I talked about where I, in college where we went around the room introducing ourselves and we had to say something about ourselves and how I just said, Eric, no hobbies, no interests. Like to me, that's a joke. Nobody cared. Nobody liked it. But to me, it was funny. But she wasn't even joking when she said, just so you guys know, I don't have a sense of humor. So your office banter, I'm not going to understand your jokes. And office humor, honestly, as, as nice as it is, to like joke around and be lighthearted. Office humor is the worst, especially in today's world, because it's not even organic. Like when I was working in this office, like everybody there 
quoted Anchorman all day, every day. I'm not even exaggerating. Like, every day somebody found an excuse to make an Anchorman joke. That's not fun. (laughs) But humor is like music in that way where you love it more than anything. Everybody loves to laugh. Everybody has preferences. You have your natural taste in humor that makes you laugh and you love it more than anything because there's nothing better than laughing. But there's also nothing you hate more than humor. Because you love something so much, because you're so attached to loving something like music or humor, you're also equally attached to hating it when it doesn't suit your needs. And that's just attachment in a nutshell. That's why Buddhism teaches... Don't be attached to happiness because being attached to happiness means being attached to unhappiness, to misery. And if you're attached to one and you're always seeking it, you're going to be devastated when its opposite rears its head. And it will rear its head because it turns out those two things are, it's the North Pole and the South Pole. It's two sides of the same coin, happiness and misery are connected. They share a spine. They're just on different sides, different ends. But some things you love so much that you will inevitably deal with that. Like, like as someone who, I'm not going to stop enjoying humor. I'm not going to decide to be humorless like my former coworker. I mean, she was probably naturally humorless, but I'm not going to make a decision to do that because I love humor too much. But the downside of that is I will experience a lot of humor I don't like, and that's just life. But people are that way too, where it's like when you love somebody, that familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes when you're dating somebody, or family's a good example, family is the best example, where it's like you love family, and even if your family isn't bad, like even if your family, they're good people, It's very easy to be bothered by them. It's very easy to be annoyed. It's very easy to make more out of that annoyance than it really is. Like talking about people who have decided they hate their parents. Because it's easier than focusing on themselves. And Carl Jung talked about that in, I think it was Modern Man in Search of a Soul. How he says there are just two distinct types of people. He said there are people who understand that their parents are human And they can kind of contextualize their parents' behavior in that way. They don't see their parents as larger-than-life figures. But he says there's this other type of person where it seems like no matter what they do, no matter how old they get, no matter what they accomplish, no matter what they make of themselves, they still see their parents as these looming larger-than-life figures. And the latter are the sort of people who will resent their parents, who will hate their parents, even when the parents don't really deserve it. But it's like, sometimes it's hard just to see the in-between with people and appreciate that in-between. And it's something you experience in intimate relationships where some of the things that your significant other will say to you, and I'm not talking about abusive things. I'm not talking about anything that is outright abusive. But some of the things that the person closest to you can and will say to you 
you can't even imagine a random person saying that. And a good example of this is I have a friend who I won't name, but he was telling me about like a problem he was having with his girlfriend and something she said to him. And his response was incredible. Like, I, I don't think I give him enough credit. I give him a lot of credit in some ways, but I don't think I, I give him enough credit sometimes because his response to her was so perfect. He said to her, what you just said to me is the sort of thing that someone says to somebody they hate. And I was like, man, why didn't I think of that? But I'm glad to have it. I'm glad that now he's passed that knowledge on to me. Because he's a, he's a sort of person where sometimes I'm like, hey, he doesn't really know what he's doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I'm, I've been single for years. I, don't, I wouldn't claim to be a relationship expert. But this person will sometimes tell me things, and I'm like, huh, you're getting yourself into a mess. But just that statement is just, it's incredible. I mean, it's just the perfect response. Like if your significant other says something that is filled with contempt to say to them, that's the sort of thing that someone would say to somebody they hate. But it's not a coincidence that that's somebody's significant other saying that. And, and not an abusive significant other either, because that's, that's a whole other thing. If it's an abusive thing, that's an entirely different story. But just as a normal part of a relationship, people say things that if you get outside of that situation, you just go, wow, I can't believe they would say that to somebody they love, to talk to them that way. But I don't think it's different than liking music or humor. And like some of the things that I might say about humor I don't like or music I don't like would make you say, I thought you loved music. Like, how could you say something so critical about music? I thought you loved it. But it's like my interest and familiarity with music is what creates that. Because I'm attached to this love of music, I have to contend with music I don't love. And I'm not mature enough to avoid hating it. But we tend to do that. We tend to feel the passions equally about a given subject or person. And it's, it's also not a coincidence that if you hear somebody talk about their ex, I always thought it was really trashy when people refer to their, their ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend as their ex. Oh, my ex used to say that. Uh, that reminds me of what my ex used to do. Something about ex I really don't like. But if you listen to the way people talk about their, their exes, it's awful. And I, I share stories on here. You know, I, I talk about it. I think I might run the risk of doing that sometimes. I try to use it, though, for something constructive. Like, I don't, I think it's trashy to just complain about somebody you dated, even if they were horrible, even if they did horrible things to dwell on that. And you can see where people dwell on that for years. I mean, I've had friends, acquaintances, I've had acquaintances and you're drinking with them and they're, they're like going off about somebody they dated 10 years ago. They're going off about their ex-husband or their ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, ex-wife, and it's just like, wow, like you still hate this person. Like you decided that you hate this person. And so that's what happens though. Like if you love somebody, if you're attached to this positive side of that, you know, unless it's a, unless it's a perfect situation, chances are though, there's going to be something you don't like. And that little crack 
turns into a canyon. And you can easily get attached to this idea of like, I loved them once and I hate them now. And that hatred, that contempt, maybe, maybe contempt is a better word than hatred. Like that contempt developed while you were with that person, while you were committed to that person. And you can't let go of it because you got hooked into that two-way, you got hooked into that you know, dualistic way of seeing the situation. And uh, it's not good for you to think that way, for one. It's not good at all. But, uh, you know, what got me thinking about this is just different senses of humor. And because I'm seeking humor all the time, and you can't, I don't know, you can't force it. It has to come naturally. But, you know, because I'm seeking humor, I'm looking for the fun in things, even serious stuff. That's the way my brain works. Like, if I see some news story, I try not to joke about death, and I know that I'm a huge hypocrite. You could point out my hypocrisies, considering last night's short episode was basically just a big joke about Kurt Cobain's suicide, Kirk Corbain's suicide. So, I mean, I joke about and I mean, I've joked about my mom's death. I have no problem. Joking about my mom's death makes her more alive to me. And she appreciated morbid humor like that as well. Like she talked about that when her brother died. Not that I even have to justify it. But I'm willing to even joke about my mom's death in the right context. So I'm I'm fine with people joking about death. But, um... What am I getting at here? So, I, I mean, I don't... You know, nothing is off limits with humor to me. But I guess I, even though like I, like, I guess why I'm, why I'm talking about that is because like, I'll look through a news story and like, if I read about a mass shooting, I'm not going to like think about jokes. That's not really the the sort of thing that even that's shock humor, but some people are very funny. Like I said, I, I did hear a couple jokes about the girl who disappeared and was found dead recently that were legitimately creative and funny. And I guess that's what it is. Is it creative? I like creative humor. I like something that surprises me. I don't like templates. I don't like ad-libs. But my brain works that way. Whether anybody else finds it funny, whether it's just for my own internal thoughts, when I'm reading about something serious, I look for something weird. I look for something funny. It's done me well so far, honestly. I would say it's one of the reasons I'm still here is because I'm able to do this. I don't think I would want to deal with the world. I don't think I would want to maybe even be alive if I couldn't go through something serious, comb through it, and be like, that's funny. That's weird. But um, And I don't like the mentality either of like, now is not the time for humor. Because the beauty of humor is there's really no time and place for it. Yeah, it can be inappropriate, but there's no one place that it should or shouldn't take place. And sometimes it's the least likely place that you find it. But yeah, it does feel like the modern left and you know everything associated with it 
the humor does feel like it's just a fill in the blanks. It's a template. And it's not surprising to me that the censors hate creative humor more than anything. They don't want people to be inventive. They don't want people to come up with their own jokes because when people come up with come up with their own jokes, they're unpredictable. They might rub somebody the wrong way. They involve much more nuance. And they might actually point something out that people aren't noticing. And humor not only helps you notice it, but it actually gives you energy. Because you're able to acknowledge that truth without being weighed down by it. So when you hear something or see something that you say, oh, it's, it's funny because it's true. It allows you to experience that sensation of, oh, you know, this is, um, th- this, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I've already explained it well enough, but just, it, it allows you to be, to say, okay, you know, that's, there's, there's something true. There's something right about that. But instead of getting angry about it, I can actually just laugh and feel lighter inside without forgetting what's true about it. Enough of this. It's what we all experience. When we don't feel constrained, when we don't feel like anybody is imposing their will on us, telling us what to do, when we're allowed to simply find things funny that we naturally find funny, This is a common experience. It's a very human experience. Because the thing is, when you're just getting angry, when you're just staring into the abyss, and you're finding yourself angry and very serious, when you're observing the abyss and you're feeling very serious about what you're seeing, it's like being sick. Like, I think being angry is being sick, even though it's temporary. It's not the same as a full-blown mental illness that you have to live with forever, but it's a temporary psychosis, which is why angry people do things they would never otherwise do. But you're sick right then. If you see something and you go, oh my, oh my God, oh my God. If you, if that's your response, oh, fuck you, oh my God. God, I can't believe he did this. Fuck him, dude. Fuck him. Oh, dude. You know, that sort of response to things. You're sick and you sound sick. And it goes away. We all get angry. We all get sad. But that doesn't make it any less sick. Guess what? We all get sick. But humor is sort of a release from that. You know, on an intellectual level, it acknowledges the same thing that anger does. But it doesn't chain you down to it. Because guess what? Staring into the abyss is funny. And that's one of the reasons I do it. When I find myself just staring into the abyss, I'm not looking for anger. I'm not looking to be defeated. I'm not looking for nihilism. What I'm looking for more than anything is to laugh. Because it turns out, 
a lot of the humor in our world comes from the abyss. It comes from watching the abyss and saying, well, hey, there's something funny. I noticed something in the abyss that's actually kind of funny if you put if you phrase it the right way, if you look at it the right way. And when people point out hypocrisies, when people are outraged, when people are outraged, there's so much hubris to it. There's a lot of hubris. People are proud of their anger. Anger is audacious. And, you know, I'm not a big Terrence McKenna guy necessarily. I talked about a while back that synchronicity where I was starting a new drawing and I was just kind of making an intuitive shape as I sometimes do. And I, I looked at it and I was listening to this Terrence McKenna lecture and I'm not interested in what he has to say about psychedelics, even though that's his main thing. What I find interesting when I do listen to Terrence McKenna lectures, his talks, is not him talking about his psychedelic experiences. It's not him framing spirituality and shamanism in a psychedelic context, which he does all the time. It's that he, he does talk about universal truths. And he's accessed those through psychedelics. But as I say on here a lot, you don't need psychedelics to access those. And in some ways, associating those epiphanies and experiences with a material substance you put in your body, if that works for you, it works for you. But I guess I don't like that framework entirely. I feel like it's very secular. It's, it's too secular in nature. But anyway, I was, I was working on this drawing, listening to this Terrence McKenna lecture, and I noticed this thing I was drawing was kind of shaped like a weird ampersand. And I was like, huh, I guess I'm drawing an ampersand. And that was that. And the next day, I woke up in the morning. Already, I had already acknowledged that my drawing was basically this ampersand. And I just decided to go with it. I was like, I guess this is what I'm drawing. And... The next morning, I was working on it again, and I resumed the same McKenna talk, what we call a resume in a little McKenna talk. But I turned on McKenna again, and then he got to a part where he started talking about ampersands. And it turns out, like, I'm not a big enough Terrence McKenna fan to know this, but I guess the ampersand represents something to him. It's, it's a symbol that he's preoccupied with, and he sees it as alien. I don't even completely understand it. I don't, it's some sort of epiphany he had. And he, he was describing like what the ampersand represents to him. And it was clearly something that he talked about and thought a lot about before. And it was a great little synchronicity. It gave me a little chill because I was like, it's weird that I was listening to this last night while I was drawing this. And he had not mentioned the ampersand yet. And I already started drawing it. And I acknowledged that this looked like an ampersand. And then the next day, he starts talking about that on the same lecture. It was just, it was a weird little moment. But, you know, one of my favorite Terrence McKenna quotes, and this is not an exact quote, but an idea, is he said something like, anxiety is a form of hubris. And one of the meanings of the word hubris is defiance of the gods. In Greek tragedy, apparently, Hubris is used to refer to 
defying the gods. And anxiety does feel that way. And the way Terrence McKenna explained it was, when you're anxious, you're communicating that you know what's going to happen, and it's bad. You know what what the future holds, and it's going to be bad. Because that's what a lot of our anxiety is about. Like, unless you're having an episode, unless you actually have some sort of disorder that causes you anxiety, chances are your anxiety is produced by some hypothetical scenario in the future. It could be the near future. It could be the distant future. It could be likely to happen. It could be something that might realistically happen. Maybe you're worried about some realistic outcome. But there still is this element of hubris to your anxiety where you know what's going to happen. And if you've dealt with a very anxious person or if you've been very anxious yourself, you almost try to convince them that it's, it's, it again goes back to kind of imposing your will. Where I've talked to people who are having an episode of anxiety before, a friend, and I realize that they don't want this to be alleviated. They think that this is, they think they're basically predicting the future. And nothing you say is going to change that. But who are they to predict the future? And this is where the defiance of the gods comes in, where it's like, you're trying to communicate that you know more than the gods know. Or that it's your duty to worry about the affairs of the gods. And you can interpret that any way you want. You can interpret that literally. You can narrow it down to one god. You can just call it fate. But either way, you put yourself in an authoritative role. And there's hubris to that. It's one of my favorite Terrence McKenna ideas, and it blew my mind. I said, yeah, that's exactly what it is. When I am anxious myself, it feels wrong. Like beyond the fact that anxiety doesn't feel good, beyond the fact that anxiety can be debilitating, distracting, miserable, it also feels like you're doing something wrong, and that makes it that much worse. And so a part of you kind of knows that what you're doing is audacious, filled with hubris. But so is anger. You know, somebody who is angry is filled with hubris. I need to be serious about this. I need to be upset. I need to be outraged. This is so important that I have to let go of all my other senses. And I have to be mad. I have to be hostile. It's very audacious. But we as human beings are audacious sometimes. We are filled with hubris. We're continually defying the gods. And we defy the gods when we're angry. We defy the gods when we are particularly sad. And part of that, though, is because we're attached to the extremes. We're attached to feeling good and feeling bad. And it turns out feeling good and feeling bad and being attached to those feelings is hubris. And so when I see people who are outraged and they're pointing out all the hypocrisies, like when I see right-wing pundits who are like, can you believe that uh, everybody was upset about Trumpsfeld putting kids in cages? 
And now we have Jabama bin Biden and there's even more kids in cages. They're such hypocrites. Like when someone's outraged like that, first of all, I don't know who it's going to convince. It's basically pornography for people who already agree with them. And maybe they need to point it out. But I think it can be done through humor. And when someone is simply outraged, I just see that and I'm like, huh, there, there's, this is audacious. But what's interesting is people treat humor like it's audacious, and it is. There's a lot of hubris and audacity to thinking, I'm going to say something funny. People are going to laugh, or, or if they don't laugh, they just don't get it. You know, being a comedian, seeing yourself as a joke maker. You know, it's a pretty bold move. So, yeah, there's hubris to humor. They both start with hue. But there's something about the audacity of humor that doesn't feel wrong to me. And it, it's much better than being outraged. It's, it's much better than being demoralized. And I think it's actually what keeps you from being demoralized because it, it sort of cleans your system out. When you genuinely laugh at something, no matter what it is, it's almost like a fire cleanses the inside of you. It keeps you clean. And it's always been funny to me when someone laughs at something that they think might be inappropriate and they say, oh man, like I'm going to go to hell for laughing at that. I'm going to go to hell for laughing at that. Oh, I shouldn't be laughing at this. <clears throat> you know, it's like that people say that a lot. But I think the opposite is actually true. Because if it's making you laugh, it's actually doing you a service. Even if it's something you don't agree with. Because you don't have to agree with something to find it funny. And I think that's one of the angles I see with modern leftism. I guess we did get into politics. Here we go. But you know, that's one of the things we see with modern leftism. And this, a lot of people have been pointing this out lately. And I've observed it too. I've, I've watched some clips and things where increasingly comedy that comes from the left produces applause. Like when Jimmy Kimmel makes a certain joke or one of these stand-up comedians, Hannah Gatsby, I mean, there's many of them. I don't pay too close of attention, but they'll make certain jokes and the response isn't genuine humor. It's this applause. I like that point. I agree with you. And so, so much of our humor now with the way lines have been drawn is based not on what is truly funny. And everybody has a different sense of humor, yes. But it's not based on what you find truly funny. It's based on what you agree with. And so it doesn't end up cleansing you at all. But, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not reading too much into when people say, oh, I shouldn't be laughing, but... Or I'm going to go to hell for this one. You know, I'm not, that's just something people say. I don't hold that against somebody for saying that. But it's funny to me because it shows them that they think that they are doing something morally questionable or politically questionable, socially questionable, and that they should feel bad about it. But it's funny enough to where they don't. 
And people will do that naturally. People naturally will catch themselves and say, I, I shouldn't laugh at this. Yet it is funny and I have to laugh. People will do that. You know, most people are, most people are self-aware enough to where, um, maybe, maybe self-aware isn't the right word. I guess most people have a strong enough moral baseline, at least during good times, that they can do that. They can afford to do that. And they don't need outside pressure also telling them, don't laugh at that. In fact, that person shouldn't even be allowed to say that. Because when you do that, when you impose your will on what people can and can't find funny, you take that natural tendency that people have to say, oh, I shouldn't laugh at this because it's immoral or against my beliefs or it could offend somebody, and you magnify that. And what you end up with is people just clapping at a stand-up comedy performance. And uh, I saw a friend of mine last week that I hadn't seen for a couple years. He lives up in Seattle. We worked together many years ago, and we were very like-minded. There were three of us at this job, and it was me and this guy. And he he did stand-up comedy years ago. Didn't become big or anything, just local. He did some local stand-up comedy, probably open mics. But he tried out stand-up comedy. He's, I would call him a humorist. He writes articles that kind of have a funny bent to them. Sometimes they're critical. He's written for some pretty big publications. Not he, He's not well-known or anything, but he, he's gotten published in some a couple surprising places. Not surprising because he's not capable, but just surpri- I, Just knowing this guy over the years, it was kind of cool to be like, oh, wow, he, he has an article here. But he was... He messaged me last week and he was like, uh, hey, I'll be in town in 20 minutes. And I was like, perfect. Let's meet up. But he had written an article a couple years ago before the mania had, I mean, the mania was already going on, obviously, but it hadn't gotten this bad. And he wrote an article where he basically said, like, if we keep this up, the sort of art and creativity we're going to have is going to be like the equivalent of a hotel lobby painting created by kindergartners he said something along those lines and it's true really you do end up with this lowest common denominator not just generic but poorly made generic expression and that is what you end up with you end up applauding because guess what you can applaud like applauding doesn't come from the heart it can but you can applaud you can come across like a fan of something just by applauding it, but you can't truly fake laughter. And I'm very good at recognizing fake laughter. See, you can, you cannot get one past me. And that's what we end up with is we end up with the, you know, the equivalent of a hotel lobby painting done by a child and we applaud it. That's what we end up with. Paint by numbers. And it does little for you except affirm your beliefs. But seeing this friend, too, I should just note, like, when, when we worked together, there were three of us who were definitely, we definitely saw the world differently than our coworkers, and so we would go out for drinks and just talk about it, and we all, you know, unsurprisingly, all three of us just joked around the entire time. No holds barred. 
And one of the guys that we would hang out with, he was a Muslim, not a practicing Muslim, but he came from a Muslim family, but he was blonde hair, blue eyed, half Jordanian. I believe his mom was Scandinavian heritage. He looked far more Scandinavian. I mean, he was more Aryan than I am. You know, I'm 100% European. He's half Jordanian. I don't know exactly what the average Jordanian person looks like in terms of complexion, but it's the Middle East. But he was an interesting guy because he was very conservative, and he had gone to Evergreen some years after I did. And he was hardcore. I mean, he in 2016, he went hard for Trumpsfeld, if I remember right. But we, we kind of created this little this little group of us, this three of us. And so this guy, this guy that visited last week, like he knows kind of where I stand on things and where I where I stood then. This is back in like probably 2014 that we were hanging out and everything like that. And uh, he so he knows kind of how I am and everything. And he knows I'm a fan of his writing. But it was funny because like we met up and I could kind of tell that he was feeling me out. Like I could, I could tell that he was kind of seeing because so many people have their brains have been so warped and he and I don't keep in regular contact. Like I think we met up a couple years ago, maybe three years ago. Yeah, I think the last time I saw him was 2018. And so many people have become that much more warped since then in the last year and a half. And I've only communicated with him through like brief text messages at the most. And so it was funny, though, because I, I could tell when he met up with me. And it's not that he wanted to talk about anything crazy. It's not like he was feeling me out because he wanted to launch into some tirade that might be questionable. Nothing like that at all. He's a pretty even keeled. I would consider him kind of a middle of the road guy as far as like what he values. But it was funny to me because I could I could distinctly tell he was kind of waiting for me to like give the signal that everything is the same way it was back <laughs> back when we used to hang out seven years ago. But I like what he said, a hotel lobby painting created by kindergartners, something like I might be getting it slightly wrong, but that's what you end up with. And I was I mentioned in a recent episode too how so much is being communicated through song and dance. We've entered this era where we we've kind of returned to this almost like vaudevillian emphasis on song and dance to communicate messages. I mean, I don't know that vaudeville did that. But it seems like there's been way more emphasis the last year. You know, the nurses dancing, late night TV increasingly uses song and dance. I mentioned that there was a late night show last week that did some sort of song and dance performance telling people to get vaccinated. And I just heard yesterday that they did some sort of song and dance at the UN meeting. They had a group of people do a song and dance with some sort of, I don't even know what it was about, but I I just saw that they did that and I'm like, yeah, they keep doing this. It is like some sort of kindergarten performance. And what do you do, but uh, you applaud that? Like when some celebrity does a song and dance routine telling you to get vaccinated, you applaud that? At what point do you watch this and say, these are the people I agree with? These are the people who are promoting the message that I agree with? Yeah, of course, there's always going to be people who say things. There's, there's always going to be people you agree with who don't express 
an idea you agree with the way you would want them to, and it might be embarrassing. But people don't seem embarrassed enough as far as I'm concerned. People should be far more embarrassed by what's going on. People should be far more humiliated that they agree with these people. But instead, they're doubling down. Instead, they're trying to convince you even harder. And they think that a song and a dance will convince you. It really is kindergarten level. I mean, they might as well just bring out the Blues Clues guy on late night TV and just be like, Hey, do you know what this is? It's a syringe. You should let the doctor stick it in you. You know, these might as well be children's shows. But be careful what you invest into, too, you know. Be careful be careful what you love. Because if you love something, that means you have to hate it, too. And it doesn't mean you have to hate the things you like. But it means there's a good chance everything around the things you like, you will hate. Just like music. It's like, I love this band. But these bands that are kind of around them, these bands that are trying to do something similar, I hate them. I hate them. And more and more I realize, like, everything kind of teeters on that edge. Everything kind of is some kind of... Every, everything does kind of sit in this small clearing surrounded by a much bigger jungle of horrible things. And that's the risk you run when you move to the jungle. If you go live in the jungle, well, the reality is you're surrounded by the jungle. When you love humor, you're going to be surrounded by bad humor. When you love people, the people you love are going to be surrounded by people you don't love, people you might not like, people you might have contempt for. And it's what I was saying recently about sometimes by isolating, you're actually reinforcing your love. By not going out in the thick of it, you're actually reinforcing the love you have for people because you're not even giving them the opportunity to bring out that contempt that you might have. But you can't do that all the time. And I mean, just hanging out with a couple people in the last week, I'm like, wow, when's the last time I did that? <laughs> you know, when's the last time I hung out with two people in one week? I'm bragging here. It's been a very long time. Over a year, probably. No, not quite a year. 
probably been since the fall. Or not, yeah, no, maybe that, maybe it has been a year. I think it was. I think the last time, <laughs> the last time that I hung out with more than one person in a given week was probably around the election last year. But I'm kind of taking that approach, where it's like just uh, you know one person at a time, because the psychosis is so strong. And I feel like if you interact with too many people right now, there's that much more of a chance that you're going to get pulled into it, that you're going to be outraged, that you're going to join in. But uh, just keep a sense of humor. I keep saying that over and over again. But it does seem to be the one solution that I have is handling all of this with a sense of humor because if you can laugh like let's say somebody you know this is a phantom but let's say somebody confronts you or let's say somebody says something to you that's confrontational or hostile and I have had experiences with that with this if you can laugh it off even right there in the moment you're not going to be sick Because that's the thing that happens when somebody is hostile toward you. Just like I was talking about earlier. Like when somebody doesn't like you, your petty response is to be like, well, I don't like them either. I'm going to retaliate with the exact same thing they did to me. You don't, you're mean to me? Oh, I'm going to be mean to you. And that shows a lack of discipline, a lack of control. But the problem is it doesn't end there. And this is why I say that anger is being sick. Being sad is being sick. Being outraged is being very sick. Because it doesn't end with the interaction. And it might not even be a person-to-person interaction. It might be a news article you read. It might be an editorial. It might be something that's some comment online. I think that's probably more common than anything. Is people read a comment online that sends them, it makes them sick. (laughs) it makes them ill but it's not just in that moment of being upset it's that you carry that with you it's why when somebody has a bad day at work and usually a bad day at work means a bad interaction with another human being they bring that home with them and sometimes they can't stop talking about it and work gossip is like that even though you need to vent with coworkers, you know oftentimes you all get sick and you can't stop talking about it You dwell on it. You look for opportunities to keep it going. You look for opportunities to stay sick. But I believe that responding with humor, keeping your sense of humor, you don't need to convince anybody if you can do that. And people who see that, like let's say in this hypothetical phantom scenario, let's say there's an argument taking place and there's a crowd of spectators No matter what the crowd believes in, if they see that one person doesn't get sick, if they don't become outraged or angry or hostile, and they don't give in, but they deflect the the situation with humor, deep down they know that that person is right.
is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free So take